Well, good morning, church. <laughs> My name is Reverend Macy Liptoy. I am an associate pastor here at Lover's Lane, and I lead our third campus in West Dallas called 723. And I'm so grateful to be in worship with you this morning. Well, back in 2018, my cousin had the first child born of the second generation. He and his wife had this little baby boy named Ryder. And he was the first little kid to become in our family in many, many years since my little sister was a baby. And we were all so excited to have Ryder finally here. He was so cute as a little kid, and of course, everyone had eyes on him. Every single person in the family, when we got together, would dote on Ryder. Every single person made sure they were watching him, made sure to look after him. There were probably 20 people who were all just looking at one one-year-old. <laughs> but since Ryder has been born, three more babies have joined us, which is a great blessing in our life. But it means there are a whole lot less eyes on Ryder. Now, to understand why this might be a little bit of an issue, you have to understand who Ryder is. He's a smart kid. He's curious. He likes to figure things out. I think I have some pictures to kind of give you a, a guess of what he looks like. Let's see. There he is. <laughs> Isn't that a cute kid? I think I have the next, another one where he's, yep, he's helping on the farm. He is your quintessential little farm boy. He's about to be three years old, and he loves to help, loves to figure things out, loves to put things together, tank things apart. But it means that Ryder is really busy. And the older he gets, the more curious he becomes, and the more he wants to potentially get into trouble. Because he's figuring things out. He's learning, no, don't go downstairs without an adult helping you. But I realized as we got together, after a bunch of new children joined our family, there were less people watching Ryder. Everyone wanted to hold the new babies, of course. They're super cute. But here was this toddler who needed folks to keep an eye on him. Because when we got together as a family, we knew it was our opportunity to give our parents a rest. To give our young parents a chance to not watch their kid every second of the day. And I noticed that wasn't necessarily happening with Ryder. And so I made it my mission, when I realized this was happening, to be his body man. So every time we get together, I take on watching Ryder. He doesn't need a whole lot of entertainment. The kid will figure out what he wants to do, but just to make sure he doesn't jump into the pool when no one's watching. And so after several of these family gatherings where I had taken upon myself to basically give my cousins a break and watch their very curious, very funny little boy, they said, thank you so much. We always worry because people are preoccupied with the babies and we've got to keep watching Ryder. And so we're so thankful that we know that you've got eyes on him, even when we don't. And to me, I felt like I appreciate your gratitude, but... This is just what we do. We're a family. We're a community. We just step up when we need it. In times of struggle or when you're tired of just watching your kids for one more second or you need a helping hand, part of being in a community means walking alongside someone, whatever that might look like. 
And so the past few weeks, we've been in this sermon series called The Art of Neighboring. And we've talked about what it means to connect with folks that might be outside this church building. But I've noticed something interesting. is that we haven't necessarily been talking about people that you don't know. Or people that you might not already be in community with. Because we're talking about connecting with people who live next door to us. Who live across the street from us. People we might see at the neighborhood pool or at the apartment gym. Folks that you might pass in the hallway or on the street when you're walking to your house or your apartment. That you already have a relationship with but you just haven't connected. It means something when we commit to be in community with one another. And so during the series, we've talked about how to connect with people that we're already in community with. And this week, we preachers had the option to consider two passages, passages of Scripture. And they speak to similar things. Pastor Donna read one, which is from Luke 9, chapter, or chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. And the other passage actually came from the very next chapter, Luke 10, verses 1 through 4, which says this. After this... The Lord appointed 70 others and sent them on ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself intended to go. He said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go on your way. See, I am sending you out like lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no purse, no bag, no sandals. Greet no one on the road. So we get this bookend story, starting chapter 9 and starting chapter 10, of disciples being sent out, both the the 12 and the 70, being sent out in pairs to preach to the neighboring towns the kingdom of God and how it is now come through Jesus Christ and to gather more followers of Christ and perform miracles. But as I was studying these texts for this Sunday, I noticed something interesting. See, one of the most important things we learn when we go to seminary is to realize what the literary context of a particular passage is. So sometimes we talk about the historical context. What were they writing about then and why and who was writing about it? And maybe there's something happening at that time, but this is not that. When we talk about literary context, we ask what is actually happening around the passage that you're wanting to study. So for us, what is happening in between verses that come from chapter 9 and come from chapter 10? Chapter 10 even says, after this, well, what is the this? And so I read on, and Donna read it just a minute ago, of this story of Jesus talking to would-be disciples, of folks who might join him. And it's a relatively strange interaction. The first person comes up to Jesus, and I imagine he comes up to him in his excitement and is like, I'm going to follow you. I'm so pumped to be here. I'm ready to follow you on the road, Jesus. Like, I am committed. I'm in 110%. But instead of responding in kind, instead of Jesus being just as excited and saying, sounds great, we're going to Jerusalem, come with me. 
Jesus says, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Okay, Jesus? Not how I would have responded, but thank you. And then the next person that Jesus encounters, Jesus actually calls him and says, hey, come follow me. And the person says, okay, but I have to bury my father. Which, if I were Jesus, I would say, oh yeah, go do that. We'll wait for you. But Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead. What? What is Jesus up to? And then the next person he encounters, the person says, hey, I'm in, I'm going to follow you. Let me say goodbye to my family real real quick, and then we'll go. These are not unreasonable requests. But Jesus says, if you look back, you're not fit to follow me. If you look back, you're not fit to follow me? These are not crazy things that these would-be disciples are asking to do. It is not out of the realm of possibility for someone to say, I want to follow you, Jesus, but I've got a funeral to do. Or I'm absolutely into following you, Jesus. Let me just say goodbye to my family, pack up some things, and I'll follow you. These are not unreasonable, and yet Jesus basically says, it's meaningless. Follow me now. (laughs) Meaningless? What is Jesus even getting at? Doesn't Jesus know the meaning of the saying that blood is thicker than water? Well, you know what's interesting? Is that the editors and the translators who are putting together this, these paragraph titles that they insert in the Bible sometimes, when they were doing this with the New International Version translation, they added a title to this passage of Scripture. They titled it, The Cost of Following Jesus. As revealed in these three conversations with would-be disciples, the choice to follow Jesus is not to be taken lightly. It's completely different from regular choices that we make day to day. I could choose to go to the store and buy a shirt and then return it if I change my mind. I can choose to RSVP to an event or choose not to RSVP. But if you do RCP, please go. (laughs) People do head counts. I can choose to paint a wall in my room one color and then the next day decide I actually hate this and change it. Now, of course, there's money exchanged. There's some cost to what I'm doing, but there's no cost on me. These transactions, these choices don't require anything of my soul. They don't require anything of my holistic self. I always wondered why Jesus seemed to be talking these people out of following him. Doesn't Jesus want people to follow him? I know we do in the church. Ask any pastor who stresses out over having butts in seats or how we learned pretty quickly on in the pandemic that the streaming numbers, the views we were seeing on Facebook, didn't actually mean those were people watching the service. (laughs) If you asked any pastor, and you said three people come up to you and say, I wanna join your church right now, I wanna follow Jesus, I highly doubt they would say to these people, no one who puts a hand on the plow 
and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. What? What is Jesus doing? Well, it turns out, praise be, that Jesus knows a whole lot more than all of us. Because the editors and the translators and the compilers of the New International Version translation, they didn't title this section, The Cost of Following Jesus for No Reason. Because there is a cost for following Christ. This choice is not to be taken lightly. Now, you might have grown up in a Christian tradition that's different than Methodism. And you might have been told about this prayer called the Salvation Prayer, and you might have prayed it. This idea tells us that if we pray one prayer, if we accept Jesus into our hearts and get baptized, we are saved forever. And there's nothing more we have to do. You could sin for the rest of your life, but because you prayed that one prayer, you're good. I don't know about you, that type of grace feels cheap to me. See, there was this German Lutheran pastor called Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You might have heard of him, but if you haven't, Bonhoeffer was one of the brave voices who staunchly opposed Hitler during the fascist regime of the, th- regime of the Third Reich. Two days after Hitler was installed as Chancellor of Germany, Bonhoeffer delivered a radio address in which he openly attacked Hitler and warned Germany against slipping into an idolatrous cult of the Fuhrer. In April 1933, Bonhoeffer raised the first voice for the church's resistance to Hitler's persecution of the Jews, declaring that the church must not simply bandage the victims under the wheel, but jam a spoke into the wheel itself. Bonhoeffer knew the cost of following Christ. He was ultimately executed at a concentration camp for choosing to stand alongside the community of resistance fighters and the Jewish community against the Nazis. This man who stood up for what is right, he famously wrote about what we call cheap grace, saying cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate in flesh. There is action required. Bonhoeffer could have written all the pages in the world about cheap grace and sat in the isolating safety of his office, but he didn't. He took action. He found others who were taking action and joined them. He lived as he believed. Cheap grace, Bonhoeffer says, is to hear the gospel preached as follows. Of course you have sinned, but now everything is forgiven. So you can stay as you are and enjoy the consolations of forgiveness. Well, the main defect of that proclamation is that there is no demand for discipleship. And there is a demand for discipleship. That's why this whole idea of a one-time, isolated, individual prayer salvation is not what we Methodists believe. See, while we believe that there is nothing you can do to earn your salvation, you have a responsibility. While we do believe that there is provenient grace at work in our life, grace that comes before, 
like we will see at 11 o'clock with the baptism of Caden. Caden cannot do anything to earn the grace that is already bestowed upon him. But Caden can be committed to this community. Caden can know that it's not just his parents that commit to raise him in Christ, but we do as well. Because there is community in discipleship. There is community inherent in our sacrament, and that requires a response. That's why as Caden grows in the common life of this church, at some point, he will become aware of the grace that is already at work in his life. He will have a moment of justification when he knows God, is aware of God, and then has a choice to choose God once again. Because as the person who founded the Methodist Church, John Wesley, who was a college kid who started a small group at Oxford University, he believed that when you encountered the risen Christ, when you encountered God, when you encountered the Holy Spirit, you didn't remain the same. Fruits of the Spirit sprang forth. Your life was different. You were called to action. You were called to live your life differently because you are now aware of God at work in your life. And so we respond to God's work in our life. We have the responsibility to take on the demand of discipleship, to follow in the footsteps of those first disciples by preaching of the already here and yet not realized kingdom of God, offering hope and healing to all people in the name of Christ. And we follow in their example by not going alone. There is community inherent in our discipleship. It's why Jesus doesn't send anybody out alone. Jesus knows the cost of this commitment. And Jesus does indeed know the full meaning of the phrase, blood is thicker than water. For the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. We were made for community. From the very beginning, we were made to support one another in this journey. In Genesis 1, it says when God was creating humankind, God said, let us create humankind in our image. There is multiplicity written to our very bones. We were created to live this life together, to join as a community in prayer and worship and in sacrament so that we can go out into the world fulfilling the call of Christ. Christ. 